Chapter Six of the Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. All the next day, Green was too busy setting up the schedule of the hunting party to have time to be gloomy. But when night came, he seemed to fold up inside himself. Could he pretend to be sick too and be left behind when the party set out? No, for they would at once assume that he'd been possessed by a demon and would pack him off to the temple of Epiquas, god of healing. There he'd be under lock and key until he proved himself healthy. The terrible part about going to the temple of Epiquas was that it made death almost inevitable. If you didn't die of your own disease, you caught somebody else's. Green wasn't worried about catching any of the many diseases he'd been exposed to in the temple. Like all men of terrestrial descent, he carried in his body a surgically implanted protoplasmic entity which automatically analyzed any invading microscopic organism and or viruses and manufactured antibodies to combat them. It lived in the space created by the removal of his appendix. When working to fulfill its mission, it demanded food and radiated the heat that assured its host of its heartening presence. An increased appetite plus a slight fever indicated that it was killing off the disease and that within several hours it would successfully repel any borders. In the two years Green had been on the planet, it had to attack at least forty times. Green calculated that he would have been dead each and every time if it had not been for his symbiote. Knowing this didn't help him. If he played sick, he'd be locked up and couldn't get on the roller. If he went on the hunting party, he missed the boat, too. Suppose he were to disappear the night before the party, to hide on the wind roller while the castle vainly looked for him. Not very likely. The first thing that would occur to Zuni would be to order the windbreak closed and all rollers searched for a possible stowaway. And if that happened, Miran would be so delayed that it was unlikely he'd sail. Even if he, Green, hid in Miran's cabin, where he would probably be safe, there would still be the inevitable and totally frustrating delay. Then why not disappear several days earlier, so that Miran could have time to reload his cargo? He'd see the merchant tomorrow. If Miran fell in with his plans, Green would disappear four nights from this very night, which would leave three days for the wind roller to be emptied and reloaded. Fortunately, the tanks wouldn't have to be taken off, because any fool could see that the runaway wasn't hiding at the bottom among the fish. Much relieved that he at least had a way open, if a very perilous one, Green relaxed. He was sitting on a bench along a walk on top of one of the castle walls. The sky was blazingly beautiful with stars larger than any seen from Earth. The great moon and the small moon had risen. The larger one had just cleared the eastern horizon, and the lesser one was just past the zenith. Mingled moon-wash and star-wash softened the grimness and ugliness of the city below him, and laved it in a flood of romance and glamour. Most of Quats was unlighted, for the streets had no lamps, and the windows were shut up tight against thieves, vampires, and demons. Occasionally the torch flares of the servants of a drunken noble or rich man moved down the dark canyons between the towering overhanging houses. Beyond the city was the amphitheater formed by the hills curving out to the north 
and the great brick wall built to continue the natural windbreak. A wide opening had been left so that the rollers, their sails furled, could be towed in or out. Past this the great plain suddenly began, as if the hand of some immense landscaper had pressed the hills flat and declared that from here on there would be no unevenness. Westward lay the incredible level stretch of the grassy ground of the Zormador, ten thousand miles straight across, flat as a tabletop, broken only here and there by clumps of forests, ruins of cities, water-holes, the tents of the nomadic savages, herds of wild animals, packs of grass-cats and dire-dogs, and the mysterious and undoubtedly imaginary roaming islands, great clumps of rock and dirt that legend said slid of their own volition over the plains. How like this planet, he thought, that the greatest peril to navigation should be one that existed only in the heads of the inhabitants. The Zormador was a fabulous phenomenon without parallel. On none of the many planets that Earthmen had discovered was there anything similar. How, he wondered, could the plain keep its smoothness when there was always dirt running onto it from the eroding hills and mountains that ringed it? The rains, too, should have done much to wear it away unevenly. Of course the grass that grew all over it was long and had very tough roots. And if what he had been told was true, beneath the vegetation was one mass of inextricably tangled roots that held the soil together. There was another thing to consider, though. The winds that blew all the way across the Zormador and furnished propulsion for the wheeled sailing craft. To have winds, you must have pressure differentials, which were usually caused by heat differentials. Although the Zormador was rained by mountains, there were no large eminences on it for ten thousand miles, nothing to replenish the currents of air, or so it seemed to his limited knowledge of meteorology, though he did wonder how the trade winds that swept Earth's seas managed to keep going for so many thousands of leagues just on their original impulse. Or did they get boosts? He didn't know. What he did know was that the Zormador was a thing that shouldn't be. Yet the very presence of men here was just as amazing, just as preposterous. Homo sapiens was scattered throughout the galaxy. Everywhere that the space-traveling Earthmen had gone, they had found that about every fourth inhabitable planet was populated by men of their species. The proof lay not just in the outward physical appearance of terrestrial and extraterrestrial. It lay in their ability to breed. Earthman, Syrian, Alberian, Vagan, it made no difference. Their men could have children by the women of other planets. Naturally, there had been many theories to account for this fact. All had as a common basis the assumption that Homo sapiens had sometime, somewhere in the very remote past, originated on one planet, and then had spread out over the galaxy from it. And somehow space travel had been lost, and each race had gone back to savagery, only to begin again the long, hard struggle towards civilization and the rediscovery of spaceships. Why? No one knew. One could only guess. There was the problem of language. 
It might seem that if man had come from a common birthplace, he would at least have kept a trace of his home language and that the linguists could break down the development of tongue and link one planet to another through it. But no. Every world had its own Tower of Babel, its own ten thousand languages. The terrestrial scientist might trace Russian and English and Swedish and Lithuanian and Persian and Hindustan back to a Proto-Indo-European, but he had never found on any other planet a language which he could say had also derived from the Aryan Ersprache. Green's mind wandered to the two Earthmen now imprisoned in the city of Astoria. He hoped they weren't being treated badly. They could be in horrible pain at this very moment if the priests felt like subjecting them to a little demon testing. Thinking of torture led him to sit up a little straighter and to stretch his arms and legs. In an hour he was supposed to meet the Duchess. To do that he had to go through the supposedly secret door in the wall of the turret at the northern end of the walk, up a stairway, through a passage between the walls, and so to the Duchess's apartments. There one of the maids of honor would usher him into Zuni's presence, and then would try to eavesdrop so she could report to the Duke later on. Zuni and Green weren't supposed to know about this, but were to pretend that she was their trusted confidant. When the great bell of the Temple of the God of Time, Gruza, struck, Green would rise from his bench and go to what he now thought of as a wearisome chore. If that woman could only be interested in talking of something besides her complexion or digestion or idle palace gossip, it wouldn't be so bad. But no, she chattered on and on, and Green would get increasingly sleepy, yet would not dare drop off for fear of irreparably offending her. And to do that... End of Chapter 6